0: The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christchurch Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship the triune God. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who are in awe of him. He will hear their cry and save them. Amen. Amen. From Joel chapter 3, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and great God, through your prophet Joel, you have called your people to arm for battle turning gardening tools into weapons. You have rallied the weak to be strong. You have beckoned the nations to battle against your people. But what hope, what hope do a weak, garden-tool-wielding people have against the mighty? Our only hope is that our Savior, our champion, our King, has come in the weakness as a little baby and through the cross has conquered and so now our swords are beat to plowshares, our weakness is made strong, and all nations are called to repent and follow King Jesus. And it is in his name that we now come to worship, and amen. amen. So the Christmas season is famous for being a time of hustle and bustle. There are shopping, cooking, inviting, ugly sweater partying, uh, cleaning dealing with the in-law coordinating. And on top of all of this, we celebrate the coming of Jesus. The activities surrounding the Christmas season must have been similar to that time Jesus came to Martha and Mary's home. And if you feel stressed about your house not being ready for Christmas, imagine how Martha felt when the real Christ showed up at her house. In the story from Luke chapter 10, Martha welcomes Jesus and his disciples, and she quickly starts tending to all the needs, getting getting water, finding something for lunch, trying to kick the laundry out of sight. And where is Mary? She needs to help. And Martha pokes her head into the living room, and Mary is at the feet of Jesus, sitting and listening. And after firm eye contact doesn't work, She appeals to Jesus to have Mary start to help. And Jesus replies with a timely word for all of us. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. The Lord's loving reminder to us, and especially to all the Marthas here, is that in the busyness of Advent preparation and Christmas celebration, not to miss the one needed thing, to actually sit down and be with Jesus, to stop all of your working and to receive his grace. So I'd encourage you to read or to listen to the birth narrative in Luke. And since you're already in Luke, maybe take an hour or two and just keep reading. Finish the book. Pray and reflect on Jesus' work in your life. His grace that he has given to you. And that may mean that all the floors are not mopped. All the cookies may not get baked and delivered. You may need to turn down that invite. Why? So that you do not let this needed and good thing Time with Jesus be taken away from you. And I also got a word to you Marys out there. Keep sitting and listening to Jesus. But make sure when you're sitting, you're not just sitting in laziness. You can tell if you're listening to Jesus and not just being lazy if you love your Martha. If you love her, love gets up and helps. So help with the cleaning, help with the food prep, the decoration, jump into those pile of dishes. Help with her in all of that so that you can help her also sit at the feet of Jesus. The ideal is for Martha and Mary to be blended into one person. And this is possible, working hard and receiving grace because Jesus Christ has come, even to your home. But his coming reveals our sins distress, and overwork, and selfish laziness. Joel 2, 12 and 13. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Kind Father, We do rejoice in the arrival of another Christmas celebration. You have truly come, just as you came to Martha and Mary's home all those years ago. We confess that we often stumble like Martha and grow anxious and stressed with the extra work. We become frustrated and angry with others. It is right to celebrate the incarnation of your son with material stuff, but often we strangle ourselves with these material concerns. Father, we also confess that we fail to be like Mary. Like, we, like Mary, we sit, but not at the feet of Jesus, rather at the feet of football or at the feet of Xbox. This is not spirituality, but selfish laziness. We use the Christmas holiday as an excuse to pamper ourselves rather than to love others. And so we fail to imitate your Son, who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life for many. We acknowledge all of this as sin, and we confess our own individual sins to you now and Selah. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. And amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of God's pardon. Isaiah 30, verse 26. Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be sevenfold as the light of seven days, in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. The good news that we celebrate at Christmas is that Jesus has come and he has done perfect work. Through the work of his life, his death, on the cross, his burial, the resurrection. And in that, he provides forgiveness of your sins. That is his grace that he gives to you. So if you are done working for any kind of forgiveness, and if you trust receiving his grace, then your sins are forgiven through
1: Christ. And thanks be to God. Let's remain standing for the reading of God's word in our text today, coming from Isaiah chapter nine. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, our service this morning has already been saturated with the promises, your promises to us as your people, your promises to David that you would raise up his seed, your promises to all the prophets from the very beginning, and your promises to Mary. Everyone has been laid forth for us to be encouraged and exhorted this morning. So we pray that our hearts might, in fact, be filled with this glory because we ask it in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. <clears throat> My wife and I are regular listeners to a podcast that's put out by Albert Moeller. He's the uh, president of the Baptist, uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And every weekday, he discusses world events, uh, normally he takes uh, news articles from the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, The Economist, and he examines them and reflects on them from a Christian worldview perspective. In the main, his most frequent theme has to do with the transformation of our culture into a kind of a post-Christian age. And this is highlighted by, of course, the stuff that we're seeing every day, the mass confusion about a rejection of God's creation, his binary creation, a rejection of of, uh, marriage, a rejection or a uh, a celebration of the sacrament of abortion on the man. All those things are reflections in our current culture. In the main, um, and uh, as a kind of a summary of this, uh, Mueller uses a quote to kind of describe the descent of this moral revolution, which takes three basic steps. The first step being that what was previously condemned is now praised. That's what we might see in terms of homosexuality in the public square. What was previously praised must now be condemned. We might look at marriage and traditional families and things like that. And what was previously condemned must now be celebrated by all. In other words, we must get in the game and, and all of our bakers and, and, uh, and uh, cake makers and, and uh, florists and everybody else must now be celebrating what was previously condemned. Well, all this is a process that we've seen kind of happening all around us very rapidly. And if you're like me, uh, it's, it's pretty disturbing. And you might be asking, well, what would be behind such a negative political beginning to a Christmas message? It sounds like some sort of like humbug. Well, it is humbug. And uh, that's why it's so disturbing. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a, a difficult time if we look around. But this, in fact, is why Christmas is the perfect antidote. So as I contemplated my own temptation sometimes to be discouraged as I look around, I remember Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 10, which says, there's no temptation but what is also common to man. It's the same temptation all of us probably are facing at some uh, time here and there. And so I think it's important that we take this Christmas time to to look at its antidote to uh, to this temptation that we have. Christmas, God's incarnation, is our good news, dealing with both the fear of the future, and perhaps our anger or distrust at what God seems to be doing in the present. Our text from Isaiah 9 lays out that God has given us a son. And then he explains just what kind of son this is. This prophecy, which is more than just one of almost more than 400 prophecies, depending on the kind of how you number them, about the Lord Jesus from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. And... Uh, Building up to this prophecy, we have here in this one in Isaiah, in chapter 8, God tells us that he was going to use the Assyrians as instruments of judgment on Israel and Judah. Now, at the time of Isaiah, Israel had already been under the rule of the Assyrians for about a hundred years. And during Isaiah's time, serving the kings of Judah, the northern tribes would be hauled off and, and kind of re, repopulated or replanted in other locations that the Assyrians controlled. And that the Syrians would actually engulf Judah, even though they wouldn't quite conquer Jerusalem. And that's chapter 8. And as we move into chapter 9, the gloom and the distress that was suffered by the northern tribes, which included Zebulun and Naphtali, the land of Galilee, would be lifted up by a visitation of God with great light. Now, how is this? That is when we come to our sermon text where God would be supplying a son. He'd be supplying a son, a special son. And as we read Matthew 4 and verses 13 13 through 16, we're told just what this connection is we have between the sun that's given and uh, how the light is going to fall on Zebulun and Naphtali. It says this, He came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in in darkness have seen a great light, and those, and upon those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. So we have the scenario. The rebellion of Judah, the rebellion of Israel, had, had drawn God's judgment. And God using the Assyrians as a tool, as a method of that judgment. And the resulting oppression, the servitude, the deportation, the devastation, the gloom that sets the stage in the situation they are facing is how God says, look, that's bad. But I've got a promise here, a promise of future light, of joy and freedom in the coming sun. Now, I mean, do you think they needed encouragement? I think so. I think it's true. And God gives it in a significant prophecy about the coming of this promised sun. But how does that apply to our present temptation to be discouraged about what we're seeing around us? How does that help us deal with the downward spiral that we see in our culture? Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Ty and I were just uh, sharing, and he, and he had this he brought this quote by Tim Keller. It goes like this. It said, "Anxiety is the belief that God won't get the future right, and bitterness is the belief that God got the past wrong." Let me see if I can repeat that one more time. So anxiety, our fears, our anxieties are based on the belief that God won't get the future right, and that our, our experience of anger and bitterness and unhappiness is a belief that God got the past wrong. Note the source of these sins. Note the source of the anxiety. Note the source of the bitterness. It's all linked to this belief about God. It's all linked to what we think about God, how we understand God. And it's kind of remember the reason I kind of like the quote is it's reminiscent of Hebrews 11:6, which says, "For this is the faith that pleases God. This is what pleases God: that we believe that He is." And that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek after Him, so that's the foundation. That's how that's that's where God's, God, how we make God happy is how we believe about Him, what we believe about Him, and how we think about Him. So let's put ourselves in Isaiah's day. If you were in Isaiah's Isaiah, day, that guy in the Old Testament, if you were in his day, the guy that starts his name with I, that guy, uh, if you were in his day, you would have plenty of reason for anxiety about the future. As it says in chapter 8, Assyria would be swirling over Judah. It would be passing through and reaching up to the neck. It was it was Isaiah who was with Hezekiah when the Assyrian camp surrounded Jerusalem, and the the, the Rabkesheth was out there insulting uh, uh both the, the messengers were out there talking with them and insulting all the Israelites there and just you know haranguing them. And it was it was a tough time. And they it was it was uh, it was difficult, in a thousand, uh, sorry. and similarly, in another 150 years, Daniel and his companions, along with the remnant of Judah, would be exiled to Babylon for 70 years. The whole nation would be kind of scraped clean, and they would be in exile for 70 years. The other, the northern country, already gone. The northern tribes already gone. So they had an option: they could look at their circumstances and be discouraged, or think God wasn't in control, or they could think something different. What's that? Well, this is how Christmas is an antidote to help us interpret our circumstances. So where is God's good news, and how does he help us deal with this temptation? Well, I think it comes in the two areas that Keller identified. One is a misunderstanding or a disbelief in God's power, and the second has to do with the nature of our God. But let's start with the power. Let's start with the fact that what do we think about God? Is he really in control of the future? The Bible says, and Isaiah says it in Isaiah 41, 21 to 24, That God challenges the people of Israel to believe that he is God on the basis of what? On the basis that he can tell the future. And he challenges them. He says, look, which one of you guys can tell the future? If you can tell the future, you're God. If you can't tell the future, you're not God. But I can tell the future. And that ability to predict the future necessitates the ability to control the future. You know, control the future is not a derivative power. It's a creative power. He is creating the future that he has promised to come about. So in chapter 45 of Isaiah, God goes on to describe the destruction of Babylon and to name the ruler who will later make the decree to release release the children of Israel, which was Cyrus the Great. Look, God says, to be God, you have to know and be able to control the future. And then he gives the example of naming the ruler that would release Israel 180 years in the future, 180 years after the prophecy was made to Isaiah. Well, if you're tempted to worry about the future, God says, look at this. I will give you proof that I'm in control just like he gave Isaiah. And in 1 Peter 1:20, 1 Peter tells us that Jesus indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but he was manifest, he was made, he was made clear to us, he was he was shown to us in these last times for your sake. This promised son was not just an afterthought. It wasn't God saying, "Oh no, I got to do a band-aid thing. You know, I got to I got to fix this up. I got a problem with sin in the world." No, it was planned from the foundation of the world. And this is why the coming of Jesus was no was no um, Uh, It it wasn't like a surprise in in Jesus' day. In fact, when John the Baptist came showing up in the Jordan and he was baptizing, what happened? The Pharisees and the Sadducees said, hey, there's like something happened out there in the desert. This might be the one. So they sent some people out there and said, check it out. And they asked John, "Are are you the Messiah? Are you the one? Why? Because they had all these prophecies. They were anticipating it. And they said, are you Elijah the prophet who was predicted, who was forecast in Malachi 400 years previous? No, I'm not him. Are you the prophet? Are you the one that Moses said, talked about in Deuteronomy, the one that's going to be like him? No, I'm not him either. Who are you? you know? And then again, he quotes. He says, I'm the one preparing the way for the Messiah. So it wasn't a surprise. All of Israel was expecting this. So from Genesis chapter 3 of the son coming to crush the head of the serpent to the promise of Abraham in chapter 12 that his, his seed would be a blessing to all nations, to the passage we read in, in Samuel, Samuel 7, that, he, that the son, this would be a, the king that would come through the line of David. These are all unfolding prophecies unfolding, God manifesting His power in his ability to control the future, hundreds of years before it actually happened. And I picked out one passage I thought I'd covered just a little bit more detail, and that had, that's coming from Daniel, and it's Daniel chapter two, where uh, Daniel and his friends are held in captivity in Babylon. And I remember, he was taken captive there as a young man, and uh, he was probably of a, a fairly rich family. Uh, again, they took kind of like the, the the leaders of Judah when they took them first down into Babylon, and so aristocratic family. Uh, you know, he was uh, from there. He was taken to Babylon U University, and he had to like study some really secular stuff. You can imagine, you know, there with the um, all the astrologers, and then not only that, he was made a eunuch. Thank you very much. You know, so he, he didn't have. You know, he was there for in captivity with his friends. And just about the time he thought, okay, I can make do with my circumstances, the king has a, a dream and then has a massive fit. And it's like, well, I'll kill all those astrologers, kill all those guys. You know, it was a pretty distressing time for Daniel. But God in his mercy to Daniel, and I think his mercy to us, gives a very beautiful prophecy. And the reason I chose this one, because it kind of covers from Daniel's time all the way through the Lord Jesus and beyond. So let's take a look at how God comforts Daniel, and I think in, in the same way comforts us. This is from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, verses 31 to 35. He says, you, O king, this is Daniel giving his, because remember the king was like, he's like, if you're really like tough guys, if, you really know, if you're really from God, you're going to both know my dream and the interpretation. Don't just give me some fluff. So, so Daniel comes to him and says, you, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and his form was awesome. Its head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And that stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And now the interpretation, verse 36 through 45. And this is a dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are king of kings. For God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, he has given them unto your hand, and he has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. And then a fourth kingdom, which shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. And whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. And yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw, the iron mixed with the ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom should be partly strong and partly fragile." And as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. Again, that's a bit of a long passage, but it's important because you know, what he's doing right here is he's detailing the next uh, 700 years of history up to the time of Christ, and then he's really opening it up beyond that. So God communicates to Daniel that there will be a succession of kingdoms, starting with the Babylonians, identified with the golden head, and this will be followed by what we know to be the Medes and the Persians, the silver chest and the arms, followed by the Greeks under Alexander the Great when he conquers Persia, and this, uh, this kingdom was eventually replaced then by the Romans, the iron, with Caesar Augustus, and then eventually weakened even as that, that kingdom began to grow and gobble up all the nations around it, gobble up the whole world, so to speak. And then we see that rock that's cut without hands from the mountain and thrown at the statue's feet. With the result, the statue crumbles and is blown away, but the rock remains. The rock remains and grows up to fill the entire world. And that rock is Christ, just like the kingdom that grows forever and ever without end is the is the sun that is prophesied there in Isaiah. Now the subsequent prophecies in Daniel about the future grow in detail, describing in ever greater detail the kingdoms that follow, the Babylonians, the Persians, the, the, the great goat that jumps, the Alexander the Great that covers all the nations, and his horns divided into the kingdoms of the Seleucids, all these things are detailed. But the key point here is that God lays out the future. In fact, he lays it out in such great detail that people want to refute the book of Daniel. It's just too clear, he's predicting his future. Too clear. It's too obvious. It had to be written later. God couldn't know these things. This, this prophet couldn't know these things. But God knew these things, and he brought them all to pass. So we sing in this Christmas song, in this Christmas song, Handles Messiah, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Not only from that, from the Isaiah passage, but it's also coming from Revelations 11.15. Or a similar theme in the Joy to the World, where we sing that, the, we are going to be receiving our King. Now in this first dream that, that Hezekiah had, sorry, that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had, uh, Daniel's given the assurance that God knows and has plans for the future of human history, but not just through the time of Jesus' birth. That's what I was trying to make that point. That rock goes to fill the whole world. And uh, this is commented on by a, a lady named Alyssa uh, Poblet in her essay called Joy to the World, A Christmas Hymn Reconsidered. Here's a quote. After all, there is no second coming without a first coming. This song, The Joy to the World, is all about the fulfillment of what Christ came to do in the first place. Christmas is not only a time to look back at the grace accomplished in the past. Christmas is also a time to look forward to the grace that was accomplished for our future. When we sing these words, we are proclaiming the ultimate joy to be revealed. That's why we can sing Joy to the World at Christmas. So what she's saying there is it's not just that we are coming to the Christ, the coming of Christ, but the coming of Christ was the beginning point of the expansion of his kingdom that would have no end. So, by extension, we are the children of the king. We're joint heirs with Christ in all of this. We can have confidence that the good work of saving the world that God put into play is underway and that he who began that work will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So, where were they 2,700 years ago during the time of Isaiah? It wasn't looking so great for Isaiah. It wasn't looking so great for Daniel. It wasn't looking so good for Israel as captives. Yet, God was not flummoxed. This was his plan, and so it's not practical or wise for us to only look at our moment of time in history. While Europe and America is having its problems, the kingdom of God continues to advance around the world, even as we are praying for the the Christians in China, which continue to explode in China. And I just spent uh, uh, a week in Zambia, uh, 10 days or a week or so ago, and, and just meeting with the brothers there and driving through Zambia, and it's like I couldn't count the number of churches as I'm walking, you know, as we're driving down the road, it's like, there's another church, there's another church, there's another church. It's like, what's going on here? He says, oh, yeah, we're, you know, we're, just, we're largely a Christian nation. It's like, that's amazing, you know, that's great, you know, or, or just hearing stories about work that's going on there. So God's not, he's, you know, we don't want to be too myopic. We don't want to just kind of get fixated on looking around and thinking, oh, no, this is the end. This is, a, this is our point in history, and this is, it's all about us, you know. It's not. Like yeast and dough, like the growth of a mustard seed, God continues to cover the earth with the gospel as waters cover the sea, just like it's promised. And this brings us to our second point, and that's the goodness of God. So if we know the power of God prevents us or should prevent us from having doubts of fear and anxiety about the future because God is God, in the same way we want to look at this idea of God's goodness to deal with the fact that we might be sometimes discontented or embittered or anger. So looking at Keller's connection between fear and anxiety and God's power, we should be comforted, as I said, the knowledge of God's control. We don't have an excuse to be anxious about the future because we serve a God who created the future. But in this text, Isaiah doesn't just tell us that God is sending his son. He tells us what kind of son he is sending. First of all, he says he's sending his son as God, our king. In this text, we're told that the government is going to be upon his shoulders. That's just another way of saying that that he is a ruler, that that he's going to carry the authority of all governance. And Jesus himself wasn't shy about it. He says, what kind of authority do I have? What kind of authority do I have? He says, I have all authority. I have all authority on heaven. I have all authority on earth. I have all authority. So that's what we start with there. And this makes sense as Isaiah concludes that this same Son that's going to be given is also mighty God. He's wonderful. He is eternal Father. He is God. Just as we, as we were kind of uh, repeating that, even though you didn't maybe have all, all of you didn't have bulletins, but we were doing the Chalcedon uh, Creed there, it's all about the fact that, that Jesus is both God and man joined together in a perfect unity that we may not understand, but is real that He is, in fact, Almighty God, Everlasting Father. He is wonderful, beyond comprehension, nothing less than God Almighty and creator of the universe. But while we can see that Jesus' authority is all-inclusive, we also see that this authority, this, this this greater Almighty God, is wrapped up in a package, in a humble, humble package. He didn't just remain distant from us. God didn't just remain pure power, unapproachable light. God incarnated Himself. He came into our midst. He became a baby. He took on flesh. He was a real baby in a real house, laid in a real manger, a real feeding trough. He was nursed just like every other baby. He cried just like every other baby. He soiled diapers just like every other baby. Yeah, so what what's going on there? Now this we are told, this, this concept of God taking on flesh is in fact the mind of, the mind of Christ, that, that Christ humbled himself, became fully man, and yet remained fully God. And this grand act of love was not just a one-time affair. This is something that just kind of boggles my mind. The fact that when, when God took on flesh, he took on flesh for eternity. It wasn't like, well, you know, I'm going to do this flesh thing. I'm going to come down. I'm going to you know, take care of the sin of the world. And then, whew, got that, got rid of that, you know, kind of clean me off. No, God connected in flesh forever in Christ. So when we go to heaven, Christ still will have flesh. That's why the Bible says he was the firstborn of many brothers. He didn't just kind of like, okay, I got this flesh thing taken care of. It's all behind me now. No, this is, this is an amazing thing that our God, the eternal God of the universe, has connected himself in flesh with us, his humanity, forever. And this grand act of love is central to the gospel and central to God's character. He is truly good. So when Christ rose from the grave and presented himself to the disciples, he had to show, hey, I, I am really, I got something here. You know, come and touch me. Put your hands, put your fingers in my hands. Put your hand on my side. You know, let's rummage to the kitchen, see if we can find some leftovers, you know. Uh, it wasn't Christmas then, so they maybe didn't have a lot of leftovers, but they probably had, you know, given that they kind of multiply fish and bread quite frequently there, they must have had some leftovers. I don't know, what, you know, basket loads of food were kind of like stuffed somewhere. Anyway, got the leftovers going and proved, I, I got this body, it's real, you know. Uh, I'm the first, and you guys are going to follow. That's us. Well, besides describing the son's character in this way, he also describes his mission, which is also character related. And that is is that he is what? He is the prince of peace. And why is that good? Well, in the New Testament terms, we hear it like this. It says in Romans 5, it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, that means made right, cleansed, justified, we're now right in God's sight. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been made right. Now we have peace. We had problems, we were estranged, we had sin, we were separated, we deserved God, God's judgment, but we have been made right, we have been justified and have peace with God. And another part in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us. That means he's brought us close. He's he's made it okay to be with him. How? Through Jesus Christ, and has given us given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that is that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. How? By not imputing their trespasses to them, and and it was committed to us, the word of reconciliation. How was he reconciling us? Because we were no longer having our sins kept on our side of the ledger. Our sins kept on our side of the ledger. Well, do you think that's good news? I think it's good news. I think it's good news because if you recognize that you're a rebel, a sinner, who has followed the path of lawlessness and rebellion, and you deserve death, you deserve God's judgment... Like the judgment was being faced by Israel, by the Assyrians coming in and taking, you know, just wiping out, hauling people off, making slaves, putting hooks in people's mouths and dragging kings around. If you think that was good times, then you may not, you know, you may not need some light. If you think our sin and the judgment that follows our sin is not a serious thing, then maybe Jesus isn't a big deal. But I do think it's a big deal. It's so big that this is is amazing good news. And how did it happen? It says it. That Jesus took our place. He made it right. He didn't take the sins that were, He took the sins that were imputed to us and imputed them to Himself. So you can see in the path of God, so instead of us being in the path of God's wrath, the train of His wrath, like the, the, the Israelites and the, Jude, the people of Judah were in God's path of wrath because of their disobedience, and we're in the path of God's wrath because of our disobedience, He says, No, I'm going to take you out of that path. You can be invited to invited, take His hand to peace you can be put into fellowship with God. You can be reconciled to his son. You can be forgiven. As Paul says in Corinthians, in Christ God no longer is imputing your sins to your account. Instead God's wrath train is hitting instead of God's wrath train hitting you, he put his son in your place. That's what it means when we read uh, in Romans when it talks about this imputation. Romans 3:25, whom God set forth as propitiation by his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. So he says, Christ became our propitiation. He became the one that received the wrath train. I like to think about it like this. It's like, you know, you're, you're walking down the street and you kind of think you got things together. And then you don't see the bus coming, like this big bus. And uh, someone, in this case, Jesus pushes you out of the way, out of the bus, takes the, takes the wrath of the bus. You're saved. And you look back, why'd you do that? You know, why'd you take the wrath of the bus? That's, that's what it's like. We, we deserve that for being foolish and walking down the middle of the road. He took it for us. And this peace that came through propitiation, the payment made for our sins, is not limited. As Isaiah says, this son will be the prince of peace to where? It says it will have no limit. It will continue on and on forever. First John 2, 2, it says this. And he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but... But what? But for the sins of the whole world. It's not just limited. It's for the sins. When Jesus said, you know, uh, that, uh, that the world be saved through him, John 3.16, he meant it. That's good news. That's Christmas. Our Jesus, the promised son, he is the wonderful, almighty God. He is the eternal father made flesh. He has shown through repeated prophecies that he holds the future in his hands. He is God and there is no other. Our Jesus, the promised son, He is the prince of peace. He came to clean our hearts from sin and rebellion and to reconcile reconcile us to himself. So you know what? We We don't have to be outside. You don't have to be outside. We receive this by faith by believing that he is not only powerful, but he is good. He is good. He is very good. And therefore, we have no room. We have no right ever for anger and bitterness and discontentedness because that's based on a misguided belief of God. So as you look around and you listen to the news, or you find yourself repeatedly shocked by the confusion that's manifest in almost every corner of our current society, consider these two things. Our God promised deliverance from the day when, well, before the foundation of the world, it says in Peter, but from the day of our first parents rebelled, he delivered them his promise. And he delivered on that promise. Therefore, we have no excuse. We have no excuse to doubt or to fear the future. And our God, this point too, gave himself in utter humility and love, connecting himself to his creation forever, forever for the express purpose of making peace with us when we were rebels and we were helpless and we did not deserve anything. That is the definition of God's goodness. Therefore, we have no excuse. We have no excuse to interpret the present or the past as anything less than moment by moment gifts from a good God good God. Therefore, as we celebrate the memorial of Christmas in two days, we can have the greatest confidence. We can have the greatest confidence and an assured faith in our God who delivered His promised Son, Jesus. He came to you. Unto us a Son is born. Unto us a Son is given. Therefore, as His minister, I command you, I exhort you to come to Him. Make peace with Him. Make peace with him. I remember making peace with God when I was 18. I'm not going to tell you how many years ago that was, but it was a lot. Make peace with him because he's made peace with you through his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we are often tempted to be discouraged and anxious about the future based on the godlessness around us, the dissolution of our culture. But we also confess that we are often unhappy and embittered about you about how you made us, or, or our present circumstances, or the things that are happening to us, the hard providences. Father, forgive us, we pray, for our unbelief. Reassure our hearts as we contemplate the sending of your Son for our sakes, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> In the sermon message, we drew encouragement from the fact that God demonstrated His sovereignty in His predictions of the future, which He subsequently brought to fruition. He said it would happen. He made it happen. We don't have to have any confusion or fear about His plan for the salvation of the world. But have you considered that God has made individual prophecies about each one of you who believe? That's right. God has made a number of prophecies about you, each one of you who believe. Do you want to know them? Of course you do. (laughs) Philippians 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will what? He will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So God started a work in you, he's going to bring it to completion. What's that? God said he began something, and that's this, 829 of Romans, for he... For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be, this is it, conformed to the image of His Son, that He might, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. So that work that God promises to start and complete in you is to conform you to the image of His Son, Jesus. Now, putting these together, God says that He will bring the work, oh, sorry. Now, how should this truth impact you? In Romans eight twenty-eight, you can now be assured that everything that happens in your life is working together for good, because it's all about helping to accomplish God's purpose to make us more like Jesus, the perfect man, the perfect human. He made this prophecy possible by taking on humanity, and God made this po- prophecy possible by taking on humanity in Jesus. Through that humanity, he made possible this table. In flesh, he was able to perfect, he was to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He was able to have his body broken, And his blood shed in this place, in place of our bodies and our blood. He was and is able to sit with us in fellowship in perfect peace because he took on flesh. He is the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government, there will be no end. So come, come to him, come eat with him in peace. Receive his sacrifice, for this too God uses to accomplish his purpose in you in the world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for your perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for Christmas, for making peace with us, for the kingdom of your Son. So as we commune with you in this meal, equip us to serve you acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And amen. Amen. This is the charge, aside from staying around and having cinnamon rolls (coughs) and pigs in a blanket, which I commend you all to do. You have been reminded of God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises and his plan in Christ. Now go out in the spirit of humility and joy as you experience his promises for you. And Merry Christmas. Receive the blessing of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And amen.